Well, you guys been enjoying digging in on the man who had God's own heart? It's a better way of translating that. Man, after his own heart, yeah, for sure, David was pursuing God's heart to be sure, but really, he was a man who had God's heart, and that's all of us. How many of you have God's heart? How many of you came here today and you still believe that you have a heart that the Old Covenant, as, as the Old Covenant described, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all else who can know it? Don't raise your hand. If you came here believing that today, I want to convince you otherwise. You're in the New Covenant now. Welcome to the day of the heart transplant. Welcome to the day of getting a brand new heart with no sin written on it, with no hardness of heart written on it, a soft heart upon which is written the very ways of God. The law of God itself is now written on your heart. It's not deceitful. Now we get deceived, but it's not because of our heart, because we still have an enemy who's very much after us, and uh, sometimes we give over to the old ways of life. How many know the day we were born again, brand new slate, brand new heart, brand new life, We're not sinners saved by grace anymore. We were sinners, we were saved by grace, and now we're saints. That's all right, thank you, Ginny. We got, that's our brand new identity. If our identity is, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, then we'll sin by faith. Did you know you could sin by faith? You could sin believing, well, I'm just a sinner. Okay, you spoke it, now you're gonna live that way. How about we proclaim over ourselves what God said, I'm a saint. Go, do you dare even say that? Go, put your hand on your heart for a second. I'm a saint. I'm a saint. That doesn't mean you need to walk around with a frisbee over your head and, you know, like an old stained glass window pictures and all of that, but it means that we actually have a brand, now some of the old ways die hard, right? The enemy still comes in. There's still things. He tries to trip us up, find ways to pull us back into the old life, but the reality is we're a brand new man. We're a brand new woman. And so it was for King Saul. We're going to pick up today in, in uh, David's life. Um, and what I want to share with you is about how when we got something real on the inside, it's really just a matter of time before it finds a way to get outside. We got to have something real on the inside. I mean, we're worshiping today and, and all, and that's great. And uh, I hope that the worship that goes on in your heart doesn't just happen for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning. I hope that you've got some kind of engine of worship that's going 24-7. You ever wake up with a song on your heart? You ever go to sleep with a song on your heart? You ever wake up in the middle of the night and there's just a song stirring on your heart? Congratulations, you got that engine of worship going on on the inside of you. If you don't, it just means you need to worship more in your waking hours. You can inform your dreams by what you think about and what you do while you're awake. Did you know that? The brain is just processing whatever it's been meditating on all day. Now, it does it in really weird pictures, right? Some of them are pizza dreams. Some of them are from the Lord. I don't know sometimes how to tell them apart. It does it in weird pictures. But what we meditate on through the day is what we meditate on while we're sleeping. So if we go to sleep filled with anxious hearts, we go to sleep uh, offended about something or we're fearful about something about the next day, maybe that's what our brain is going to be processing while we're sleeping. So... How many of you want to worship 24-7? It's perfectly possible. There's so much going on in our head while we're sleeping. Um, so Saul started out amazing as king. We looked a little bit at his life. We're in the fifth week of this, right? Going through 
David's life, but Saul started out amazing. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He prophesied. He did, I mean, he worshiped God. He was an amazing king. He gathered 12 tribes together and formed them into a nation. He had some amazing victories in the early days of his kingdom. And then all of a sudden he began to think, well, I'm going to build my kingdom now. And you remember the day that he was, uh, finally God said, okay, that's it. You're going to lose the kingdom was the day that he built a monument to himself after the Lord had a great victory. And that's when the Lord said, okay, you didn't obey me in the first place. Now you're building monuments to yourself. We're done. Your rebellion, your self-will has gotten to such a place that there is no way that you're going to be able to build the kingdom of heaven and the earth. And I, I feel bad for Saul sometimes. He didn't want to be king. And then sometimes I think, well, what got revealed by his having authority was what was in his heart all along. Because the day that the prophet came, and said, the Lord's taking the kingdom away from you. Unlike David, the man who had God's own heart, when, when he sinned big and he got called out by a prophet, he went to the Lord and he said, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Saul grabbed hold of the prophet and he said, don't take the kingdom away from me. He didn't have a word to say. And even in that conversation, is, he said, tell the Lord your God. Not my God, the Lord your God, Samuel. He never, in that moment, he had an opportunity. God only said, I'm removing the kingdom from you. He didn't say, I'm casting you away from my presence. Saul made that decision. And he made that decision, and, and uh, here's what was going on. David was anointed king. In the meanwhile, in secret, only his family knew about it. Seven brothers, mom and dad, and, and David. And the only ones that knew, the prophet said, you're the next king of Israel. Now, most all of us, especially Americans, when we get a promise from God, we think tomorrow's the day that it's going to happen, right? I mean, you see, the, you see these videos. I mean, we are so weird in the Western world. These people who freak out, like on the fast food line, because it took three minutes to get their order out the window, and, and they're like leaning over, grabbing the, the poor girl behind the counter, like, what's taking so long? I want my cheeseburger. And it's just, just nuts. We've just gotten so consumed with this immediate, we've got to have an answer right now. And how many of you have learned from walking with Jesus that he likes the journey as much or maybe even more than the destination. He just likes walking with us. That's why David's word means beloved of God, but it literally means the one who walks hand in hand with God. And that's us. That's how we do this life. So here's what happened to Saul. We'll pick up now in uh, 1 Samuel 16, uh, starting in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil, which means a bad, a sad, or a disagreeable, or an unpleasant spirit from the Lord, terrorized him. And uh, Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. And, um, and, and this creates a real problem for me. Anybody else bothered by that? Because you get this picture when you read that, like God sent a demon to torment the poor guy. What, because he made a sacrifice too early? That was his first sin. And what, because he, he didn't kill all the Amalekites? He left the king and, some, and because he feared the people. Now he's going to have a demon from God? No show of hands. How many of you actually believe that God sends demons to torment people? <laughs> you're, like, you're going to tell us the answer, right? He doesn't. There are no demons in heaven. God does not send demons to do his work. He just does, and he's not like that. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. There's no evil sent from heaven down to earth. But what about all the wrath of God? What about all the judgment? What about all the things poured out on God? Well, there's 
a bunch of different ways to understand it, but I want to bring this one out. This phrase, an evil spirit from God, there's another way to translate that in the Hebrew. And it can literally also said the spirit of God was evil to Saul. That's another way, an evil spirit from the Lord or the Lord's spirit became evil to Saul. Or literally, the spirit of God was eating away at Saul. How many of you have ever felt wallowed up in shame because of something you did? How many of you have ever kept away from God, which means keeping away from his people because you're really messed up? How many of you have ever lived in such a way that to hear the name of the Lord even became repugnant to you? Anybody else been there? Maybe not since you got saved. Some of us maybe, yeah. We got in situations, grief took over, and instead of grieving well, we grieved by bottling it up and in anger, and then offense at God stirred up, and the spirit, even the presence of the Lord. Have you ever come into an atmosphere where people are worshiping, there's a sweet spirit, and you're angry in the middle of that? That's what was going on with Saul. Saul had become so hard of heart, Saul had become so fixed in his rebellion that even the presence of the Lord felt like an evil spirit to him. How many of you know that's a major red flag? When when we start getting angry at somebody who's loving Jesus, who's speaking life, who's speaking the truth of God, be really careful. So we do this in a small measure, right? When, When we're having a bad day, and somebody comes over and tries to speak a word of encouragement to us. You ever, you ever do that? Like, you know, you're, you're just in a really bad mood and you want to have a pity party and you're the guest of honor. And then somebody comes along and starts talking about how the joy of the Lord is strength. And what do you want to do? Don't look at me. I know Lisa's laughing because she's honest. You just want to, what? Don't tell, I don't want to hear that right now. Don't you know, don't sing songs to a heavy heart. It says it in the book. Right? Why do, we get, why do we get angry when the word of the Lord's being spoken? Why do we get angry in the presence of the Lord himself? Because something's gone on in our heart and there's something rebellious happening on the inside. It's a good, that's like a good smoke detector. Remember, I've given you a bunch of smoke detectors in your spirit. You start getting angry when people are excited about Jesus, you better pay attention to something because that's going on. And the longer it sits, the harder that part of your heart gets. So Saul was like that. But the other way of understanding evil from the Lord is that we're surrounded. We just sang about that, and the Lord showed us that in pre-service prayer, how we're surrounded by the presence of the Lord. How many of you know enough from the scriptures to know that if God would not protect us, the kingdom of darkness intends to steal, kill, and destroy us? We're always, probably the, the part that we take for granted the most about being in God's presence, how he protects us from harm that we didn't even know was coming. That, that living in his presence, you know, there's this rainbow that's around the throne of God. Here, I want to read this uh, Revelation 4. This is where it is. He was sitting, was like a jasper stone. This is what uh, John saw when he was taken up into heaven and, and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne with 24 thrones, upon the thrones with the 24 elders. So that represents the church, represents us, Israel and the, the Gentiles together as one. That's why it's 24 and we're all around the throne. We're surrounded by his presence, surrounded by what does a rainbow represent? His covenant promises, it always will. That will always be the meaning of the rainbow, okay? We're all square on that, right? Nobody can take that and make it mean something different. 
It means the promises of God. Well, here's the thing. On the earth, the rainbow is a half arc, right? That's what we see. And seeing a full rainbow or a double rainbow, isn't that something else? We get all excited about that. So it's a half arc, and what's underneath that arc is the circle of the earth. So around the throne of God's this rainbow. This is all fresh stuff the Lord was pouring out, and I'm just excited. I'm going to go study it later, but I'm going to share it with you now. Fresh squeeze, we call it that the rainbow represents the promise of God, the presence of God, all the goodness of God as it becomes manifest to us. But unless the earth agrees with the promises of God, we miss out. That's where the circle becomes complete. Earth must agree with heaven for the promises of God to make their way into us. So we're surrounded by his presence. We're in that. But if we step out from that, what's on the outside? On the outside of his presence is the wilderness, the howling wilderness, as the scripture puts it. That's the place where the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, has. So if we don't stay within, within God, if we decide in rebellion, I'm leaving, then what, what happens is it's as though this is the spiritual picture. God just removed his staying hand and we'll experience all of what it means to be outside of his presence. We get that choice. God will never leave us. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. But we're allowed to leave him. Somebody nod your head. I want to know how far I got to back up to say that to you. If in the Garden of Eden were two trees, right? There was a choice. Otherwise, it's a prison that we call paradise. You can live in paradise, but if, you're not, if you can't leave, it's not love anymore. It's slavery. So we've always had that choice, but living within it. So Saul was experiencing what it was like to live outside of that. And he was just tormented. He was absolutely tormented. So when we've given ourselves to rebellion, even the presence of the Spirit of God can feel and can even manifest like demonic oppression. It it can stir up within us uh, depression. It can stir up within us anger. It can stir up within us fear. Here's an example of it in the New Covenant. Paul talked about this. He said, thanks be to God, who always, this is 2 Corinthians 2, by the way, 14, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. How many of you have tasted and seen just how good the Lord is and how sweet he is? His aroma is sweet. His presence is sweet. He has nothing but pure goodness. Every good and perfect thing that we know in life is just a shadow of of something that, that is him. He is a sweet aroma. His presence is just absolutely amazing. It fills places. It does things. It puts an entire college on its face before his presence to be healed of depression and and set free of all kinds of things. Asbury and many others now are experiencing that kind of an outpouring right now. That's the sweet aroma. But that same aroma, we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, but we're also a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are perishing. But there's a big difference. Same aroma, same sweetness, same anointing. Christ means the anointed one. The same Jesus. But we're, to one, it's an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Who's adequate for these things? In other words, the presence of God to some, to us, is the sweetness of, wow, this is what life is all about. I was born for this. This is what I was made for. To someone who's in rebellion and ha- even has a hostility toward God, it smells like a rotting carcass on the side of the road. Same Jesus, same aroma. And so it is, and so it was with Saul. 
that he was living in such a way that he opened his life, opened his heart, so the darkness had a, like a landing strip in his life. There's all kinds of ways that we can make landing strips for the kingdom of darkness to have some, some say in our lives, some sway in our lives. I don't want to dig too deep into this and do, we've taught this and it's part of our foundations class, but the kingdom of darkness has no authority over the life of a believer. Zero, none, not a not even a little bit, cannot touch our lives and the inner man in any way whatsoever unless we give it permission. Now that doesn't mean the bad things are never gonna happen, it doesn't mean we're never gonna get sick, it doesn't mean that tragedy might not come. I'm talking about to determine the course of our life, to determine what goes on in the inner man of our lives. The kingdom of darkness has no sway, no authority in that place, but it does wait at the door. We learn this right from the first sin, from the first murder that happened in the Bible. There's Cain, he's jealous of Abel, and the Spirit of God came up to him. God came and said, hey, Cain, watch it, what's going on? Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to master you, but you've got to master it. You've got a choice to make right now. Don't do what's beginning to stir in your heart to do. Sin's always crouching at the door. The enemy is always seeking a way in, but he cannot come in unless we open the door ourselves. Only you have authority over what goes on in your heart. That's one of the gifts of salvation. We finally got our heart back. Before that, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't help but sin. We, we were completely chained to it. Praise be to God, by the cross, we've been set free from that. We're not, we're not subject to that anymore. We don't have to live that way. Now we have a choice back again, but it is a choice. And Saul experienced that. Only God's staying hand can keep darkness at bay. And how do we do that? We stay in his presence. We live in such a way that we're surrounded by him. We don't go off in some rebellious path where we say, I don't care. You know, the picture, the word picture in the, one of the Hebrew words for rebellion is shaking the fist at heaven. It's called the sin of the high hand. It's the only one in the old covenant that was mentioned as the unforgivable sin. And, and we'll talk about what that means some other day. You can ask it for the podcast this week. Sin of the high hand, it means I'm shaking my fist at heaven, I don't care what you say, I'm gonna do it my way. That, that's that sin, that's that picture. When we, when we live this way, we're saying, go ahead God, remove your hand, I don't care. And then we find out real quick what darkness has to offer. That's why Paul, in the same letter that he wrote, 1 Corinthians 13, wrote the love chapter. Leading up to the love chapter, he told the Corinthians to hand some dude over to Satan. You know, I remember reading that the first time I got to chapter 13. I'm like, Paul, you should have written that chapter first. That's harsh. Hand him over to Satan. Why? So that he might learn not to blaspheme. Let him have a little bit of a taste of what this feels like. Let him see what it's like to live outside the house. Let him see, you know, he's moving toward darkness. Let him taste and experience it. Because to protect you from rebellion while you're in rebellion is to say, I'm okay with rebellion. God's saying, no, I want you to taste what the world, what your life and what the world's gonna be like if you continue down that path with the idea that just a little bit of a taste of that and you come running back home like the prodigal. And say, I don't wanna be hungry, I don't wanna be feeding pigs anymore. I'm back, I'm home. This, this benefit is the most unrecognized benefit of his presence. So our rebellion gives what, this, what we would call like a legal right for the powers of darkness to torment us. That's what Saul was experiencing. He had so gone against the Lord, he'd so rebelled against the Lord, rejected his presence, and just wanted his kingdom, 
that he was experiencing what it was like to live under the influence of demonic spirits, all kinds of tormenting spirits. Now, I'm sorry, I need to be a little heavy because this is a really important issue. I don't want any of us to experience this. I don't want any of us to live in such a way that we feel any kind of torment that, that we can't get free from. Do you know there's a kind of torment that we can't get free from unless we make a really big choice? It's the, one, it's the harshest thing Jesus ever said. This is for the new covenant, and it's really, really important. I've been around dozens of people who specialize in deliverance ministry, who, you know, they, I mean, everywhere they go. I talked with Carlos Anaconda, you might know that name from Argentina, great revivalist, and he, he wrote a book called Listen to Me, Satan. He's got such a deliverance ministry, like in a stadium full of people, he would get up, and, and he said that one time, and it became a thing after this. He said that, and all of a sudden, I mean, hundreds of people just started manifesting demons. And he, he had a, it was an amazing service, and it was in the middle of a, quite an outpouring going on in Argentina. And every one of them, he confirmed, and every one of them will confirm the number one reason why Christians are tormented by demons. And I didn't say possessed. We've had teaching on deliverance. We, we deliver, we believe in deliverance ministry. I don't believe you could be possessed, which means controlled by a demon, but we sure can be tormented and we can live a life where our mind is never at peace. Like Saul, we can live that way. And, and here's what Jesus said in the parable of the unmerciful servant. He goes and he finishes out the parable and he summoned the servant who had been forgiven of his whole debt, found somebody who owed him some money, shook him down and threw him in prison because he couldn't pay him back. So meaning he'd been forgiven, but he refused to extend forgiveness. And here's what Jesus said it would be like. Summoning that one to his, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgive you that debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until they should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you doesn't forgive his brother from the heart. Now that is New Testament, that is Jesus. And the only reason why he spoke it so hard like that, he just wanted to make sure we understand the reality that if we want to live in the new covenant, which means the cross has declared it's finished. My sins are all forgiven, and if I sin again after the cross, all I got to do is turn and repent, and I'm immediately forgiven. There is never a doubt when we come to the Lord with a humble and contrite spirit that he's, gonna re, he's once again going to wipe the slate clean and never bring it back up again. That's just how he is. No question about that. But to live in that land for ourselves, but hold others to account for everything they've done wrong to us, you know, we're, I remember that, I remember that, and we're writing a debt record to others. Jesus is saying, I, we can't do this. You pick which kingdom you want to live in. Like how, um, um, what's his name? Chris Valentin put it, Graceland. You live in Graceland? Like the original Graceland, not the, the new one. You live in Graceland or we live under the law of sin and death. We have a choice between the two. That's just one of many examples of how we can open our life to have legal access for the kingdom of darkness by refusing to extend forgiveness to others while asking God for forgiveness for ourselves. And he said, no, the tormentors are gonna have hold of your heart. You've just opened the door wide for the kingdom of darkness to come in, so repent of the unforgiveness. Now, again, I don't wanna dig too deep on this. We have a whole course in the whole forgiveness reconciliation cycle. 
But I know that the deeper the wound, the more consistent the wound, the harder it is to forgive. But forgiveness begins with a choice. It's not unforgiving, because Jesus said, if you don't forgive from your heart. Now that takes a miracle in some cases. The deeper the hurt, the more of a miracle of mercy we need in order to extend that kind of forgiveness. The point is, we're making a choice toward that and saying, God, I want to forgive. Can you take away this pain and replace it with compassion for the one that wounded me? Take this, this anger, take this desire for vengeance, take this whatever it is, this hostility, this hatred I have for that one that sinned against me and turn it toward mercy because do you know what God's favorite thing to do about sin is? Show mercy. That's his favorite response to sin. He's looking for an opportunity to extend mercy. That's the cross. He said, I'm going to show you how far I'll go in my desire to extend mercy to you. I'll die. I will die an absolutely horrific death. Carry all of it on myself. That's how much I want to show mercy to you. And all he's asking for us to go into the world and show that same mercy that we've received from him. You all okay? We can help with that. And I know we've been walking with some of you, Stephanie's been walking with some of you about some really major hurts and issues and abuse and all kinds of things. And yeah, that all happens. But God's bigger than that. God is greater than that. God is able to take that bitter water in your heart and make it sweet like he did in the waters of Mara. He is able to do it. But you gotta gotta grab hold of that supernatural work of grace that's available. So unforgiveness in the body of Christ is the most common form of passive aggressive rebellion against the Lord and maybe I would say it really is the most uh, common responsible reason for torment that Christians experience. So let's get free of that. Let's just pause for a moment. If something's stirred up in your heart right now, go ahead and call that offense to mind. Maybe there's so many, like I, I don't know. Well, just pick one. And ask the Lord right now to take that offense and overlay it with his grace. Ask the Lord to just come now and put that like on a scale, as it were, in comparison to what I've been forgiven of, Lord. Make it easy for me to extend forgiveness. Take my hardened heart, take my passive-aggressive rebellion and refusing to extend forgiveness, and turn me toward mercy as your mercy's been turned toward me. Hallelujah. You know, the other picture of the rainbow, as someone well pointed out, uh, of course, it appeared to Noah, is that it's shaped like a bow, and this bow is pointing toward heaven. So it's like the arrow of the Lord, the arrow of judgment is now pointing toward heaven, not down toward the earth. That's God's covenant promise. Hallelujah. All right, so... So Saul said to his, so his servant said, hey, you got to find somebody who can play. Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. In other words, we need somebody who can minister to you when you have these crazy fits. And so um, one of the young men said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who's a skillful musician a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Now, how did they know that? This is in the palace of the king. This is like where all the action's at. David is the eighth-born son of some little family on the back ends of Bethlehem. 
which smells like sheep from five miles away. Nobody goes there for anything but sacrificial sheep. How did they know all of these things about David? Well, there was a lot more the scriptures don't tell us about. You know, sometimes I think, I wish some women would have written some of the scriptures because we'd have a lot more details. Right, reading the Bible is like reading headline news. I'm like, well, what was happening? I want to know how did they know that he was, you know, a skillful musician? Maybe, maybe this servant like used to walk through Bethlehem and they heard David singing in the hills to the sheep, passing his time. Maybe they heard about his reputation. He's a mighty man of valor and a warrior. Maybe word had spread already about how he'd killed a lion and a bear that tried to take his sheep. Maybe word spread around the countryside. Maybe people saw him one day when he was out there taking out his anger at his older brothers by slinging his sling at a tree and destroying the thing. He said, wow, that boy can fight. I wouldn't want to mess with him. Maybe they saw, who knows, but he was doing all of these things in secret, but somehow they knew. This guy knew the Lord's with him. The Lord's with him. There's something about him. Now it says that when he was anointed in his father's house, that the spirit of God came mightily upon him from that day onward. So something happened in David's life. He was always a worshiper. Probably most people think he wrote the 23rd Psalm one day when he was out there with his sheep. And he's out in the fields and he was doing it in a corner and unrecognized. He's out there just singing to, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, he's out there singing to the sheep and the only other one listening is heaven who's leaning down and saying, that man's got my heart. That man doesn't care. He's performing for an audience of one, as we say. He doesn't care if anybody else but us even knows. And I bet the angels are singing along, leaning and saying, we found one. Did you see this? They're looking at him. You know, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the earth that he might strongly support those who's, who are really gifted and strong so they could do amazing things. No, his hearts are completely his. And he found a man whose heart was completely his and he leaned in on those songs. He said, oh, you keep doing that in the secret place. What we do in secret, what David had been doing in a corner unrecognized, suddenly became his resume for a job that he didn't even apply for. It's an amazing thing how God is able. You know, we do our job search thing and I'm not down in that, do a resume, apply for jobs. You know, I'm not saying don't do that. But it's just really amazing how super sovereign God is. Scary sovereign God is to open doors where it just seems like there's just no way I would ever get into that place. I've got a friend who was one of the top executives at Xerox. I just heard his testimony recently. He's retired now. Completely unqualified for the job. Had no, I mean, his resume had nothing that the company was looking for. But he applied. He began to work there. He worked his way up. And all along the way, you know, he kept, you know, people would tell him, you know, this is about as far as you can be able to go here until he rose to about the, almost the top level of Xerox Corporation because he was a man after God's own heart, a man who has God's heart. Got a really cool angel visitation story too, saved him from drowning in his pond. But anyway, that's for another day. Just a man after God's heart like that. So David, all of a sudden, so you ever wonder, David got anointed king, right? But he's the son of a pauper, you know, a shepherd out in the fields of Bethlehem. How, God, all right, God, so you anointed me king. I'm not the king's son. I mean, Jonathan's gonna be next in line for the throne. How are you gonna get me into the throne? Here's David out in the field one day playing and a dude comes along and says, hey, you're being summoned to the palace. What? Can you just imagine? This is going to be my first job in the palace and my entry-level position. What do they need me for? <laughs> this is going to be fun. 
This is the beginning of David's journey to the throne, which looks nothing like rising up some corporate ladder. It looks everything like the way God does to purge things out of us so that he won't become King Saul II. And David had no idea what was on the inside. You know, sometimes uh, the script, uh, uh, Paul told Timothy, lay hands on no man suddenly. In other words, don't put somebody into a leadership position too quickly because some men's sin is evident before. Other men's sin follows after. In other words, some people, it's really obvious beforehand. They have a major issue in their life. They're not ready for leadership. But other people, everything looks perfect until you give them some authority. Then all of a sudden, that dark side comes out because they haven't dealt with the inner issues. Then it gets really ugly really fast for them and for everybody that they lead. So don't do it suddenly. Go through a process. Point is that God knows where to find his faithful, prepared ones. And what we do in secret will be rewarded openly. What do you do in secret? What happens between you and Jesus when nobody's looking? What happens between you and the living God, the living, relational, love-based God when nobody's looking? It can be anything from the only time I connect with God is for a couple of hours on Sunday morning, sometimes when I come to church, and I gather together with the saints, and that's about what I got going on in God. On the other end of it is, in him I live and move and have my being, and I can't imagine taking a breath without his presence. And we all fall somewhere in the middle of all of that. You recognize our goal is to be on this end. Where I, I just, right now, if Jesus was taken away from me, I'd rather be dead. I would rather not have another day of life than to lose his presence. So what's going on in your secret place? Does your Bible gather dust during the week and you only open it on Sunday mornings? I know most of you don't even bring a Bible anymore because I, I put the scriptures up on the screen for you. But it's at the only time that the word of God gets open in your life. I urge you to repent of that and begin to build something because whatever we don't do in the secret place, there's nothing to work with when our time of coming out there's got to be something that's been going on where nobody's watching. David, all those years, he's sharpening his skills with a sling. He's learning how to minister to the Lord out in the fields, and he's being prepared for a kingdom that he didn't even know he was born for until he was whatever age he was, 15, 18, when Saul came to, or one of the S names, Samuel, that's it. The prophet Samuel came to his house and anointed him. David had no idea, it seems, till that day that the Lord's hand was gonna be on his life for a kingdom. He said, I'm just a shepherd and I'm gonna be faithful in my father's house as a shepherd. He had no idea this was his wax on, wax off. Take off your jacket, put your jacket on stage of being trained for reigning. So what we do in secret, Jesus said, remember he taught the praise, don't, don't do your prayers like the Pharisees do where they're all out in front of everybody and they're all eloquent and all that. I don't care about that. I wanna, what do you do when it's just me and you around? when nobody's there to see. Because you pray and you shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will what? Reward you openly. There's something that has to happen in that place. We can't lead, as we looked at from, from Saul's day of failure, I think our second week through this series, that you can't lead with somebody else's anointing. We can't fulfill our call in life, our ministry, our destiny in God cannot be fulfilled with a secondhand faith or a secondhand anointing. We've gotta cultivate our own anointing. We've gotta cultivate our own gifts. 
And that gift could say, stay just alone in there, that gift could remain unused, or that gift could be cultivated whether we're getting recognition for it or not. David was ready the day he was called to that palace. But not for what he meant a thought. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David, who is with the flock. You know he had that reputation too? They knew exactly where to find him. The prophet didn't know where to find him when he came to the house the first time, but everybody else knew. If, it's, if we're looking for David, he's always out in those fields. He seems to actually enjoy being out there with the sheep, and probably since the day he got the revelation, the Lord is my shepherd, I'll bet he couldn't wait to get back out there with the sheep. This is me and God time. Me and God and these stupid sheep who are always, you know, just doing their thing. But, but he got that, t- and they knew where to find him, David, who was with the flock. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread and a jug of wine, and, and he sent a, a young goat, and he sent them to Saul by David, his son. I'm going to send some gifts along with my son to the palace. And maybe his dad's going, this is it. This is his big day. The, the Lord is going to fulfill his word. This day my son will be king. Woo! He's going to put his anointing on him just like that. He's going to put his mantle on him. This is going to be great because probably nobody outside the palace had any idea that the king had issues. The king had really maybe a lifetime subscription. He had issues. And, and probably, you know, I mean, if you got someone who's mad, who's got, you know, some major things going on and they're the king, you don't broadcast that because you don't want your enemies to know about that. You don't broadcast the weakness of the one sitting on the throne. So all the throne room, I mean, you know, when a king loses his mind, people lose their heads. So everybody in the throne room, he'd start going in one of his mad fists, <laughs> you know, like that. And you know, everybody's, <laughs> we gotta, so they say, let's get David. He knows how to throw a sling at least. He might be quicker than the old man. Maybe king, you know, I don't know what they were thinking. But, but so anyway, he's going to the palace. <clears throat> he sends gifts along with him. And it says that David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Now that's a translation that's not necessarily the right words. There's no record of David actually carrying Saul's armor. In fact, when we get to the next chapter where he kills Goliath, David wasn't there on the battlefield. Somebody who carried the king's armor would have been out in the field of battle with him. So, and the, the word translated armor just means a vessel. So he, he might have been the king's cupbearer or he might have been the one that brought his clothes out to him like a page or something like that. So he tended to the king's needs. And, he, and that's David's job, just minister to the king. Now, I don't know what was going on in David's heart when, when he got in there, but the, the fact was that what David was really needed for was to calm down the mad king. And somehow he learned how to I don't know how he learned to dodge and, and, and do all the things and he ministered to the king, but he was, put to, he was put in a place where he, among a very small select group of people, could see the weakness of the king. The rest of Israel didn't know what was going on with Saul, most likely. Maybe the gossip mill got ahead of it and it got around, but only a small handful of trusted people were gonna be in that throne room when the king was having his mad fits. David was put in a place that all of us will be placed in at some point in our lives. In fact, beginning with our childhood. He was put in a test of promotability when, we get, uh, when we're placed in a position where we can see the weaknesses of those who have authority in our lives. If you are in a position to see like the real deep inner weakness, 
of somebody, whether it's your boss, whether it's your parents, whether it's your teacher, anybody who has authority, government officials, if we're in a place where we can see the weakness, you can rest assured you're in the middle of a test right now. How will you handle that? I must say that our nation's not doing very well at how we handle seeing the president's weakness, how we handle seeing any government official's weaknesses. We have a sitting senator right now who's in the hospital for depression, one of our PA state senators. I've been so grieved at hearing the response of Christians, almost rejoicing with a see I told you so. That, guys, we gotta repent of that. We wanna be trusted with positions of honor and authority. Well, if we don't learn how to honor authority, we'll never be trusted. We, we are not trustworthy to come into a position. If we can't be a Daniel who grieves at the word of judgment given to the, the emperor, not rejoicing, finally your day has come, but instead saying, oh, king, live forever. May this dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation to your enemies. I think I flipped that around. He was grieved in his heart. We've gotta come into a place by the spirit of God where we're grieved at the weakness of leaders. Why? Because God's grieved over it. The Lord doesn't rejoice in sin. The Lord doesn't rejoice in the destruction even of the full-on wicked. He just doesn't rejoice in that. So when we get close to the weakness of those in authority, how are we gonna respond to it? You know, we, we don't even need word to spread anymore. Frankly, our entire news media industry is like a bunch of middle school gossips who can't wait to share the dirt that they just dug up on somebody. Let's not engage in that, saints. Thank you, I got one amen. Let's not engage, with, that has no place for us. Oh, absolutely, we can say that is wrong, that is sin, absolutely, we can speak prophetically to those in governing places, but to get into this gossipy kind of, hey, did you hear this about so-and-so, and the president's got dementia, I, I, I grieve over that now. And I hear it more and more as things go on. If the man's got issues, we should be on our face praying for the man, not hoping for the day of judgment to come quickly. All right, now I got like six. You can make me preach longer. <laughs> that is not how the kingdom of light behaves and God honors authority. God honors authority, you know why? Because it all comes from him. All authority, not some, not most, all authority is God given. All authority. Those who sit in seats of authority are there either with the permission of God or because he set them in that place. Sometimes we have someone in a position of authority who does evil because our hearts have been evil and we're getting exactly what we asked for. I propose that's most often the case. But the fact is we need to, when we see weakness, and now bring it back home, we see weakness in our parents. Anybody got perfect parents? Was anybody raised by that perfect family, like leave it to beaver family, anybody? Some of you were closer than others, right? Most of us grew up in a place that was perfectly dysfunctional. And, and we got <laughs> issues, I mean, I mean, you look at David's family, he put a capital D on dysfunctional. Wait till we get to 2 Samuel, but that's, that's for like, I don't know, December. By the time we get there. <laughs> so yeah, we were raised in that place. Do you know the beginning of learning how not to live a life of judgment is how we treat our parents' weakness. 
And this is a dealing, this is a dealing every one of us has to go in. The commandment, the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother that it might go well with you and you might have long life in the land to which I'm sending you was not just given to young children. That commandment was given to all of Israel. So there are issues, every one of us. The day I was baptized in the spirit, I will never forget, as long as I live, I had a three hour encounter with God. And I went forward to receive hands laid on me, not believing in the baptism of the Spirit. Three hours later, I was a believer. I was on my face, hard crying in the middle of the woods at this summer camp that I'd worked at as caretaker in the off season. There was this renegade Episcopal group, Renewal in Christ, they were part of the charismatic awakening in the Episcopal church. Dude that laid hands on me had a collar and everything. He didn't even get to touch my head. I say he laid hands on me, he put his hand forward toward me. And I, I crawled out of the room and I was off in the woods because I was crying for the first time in as long as I can remember. Hard crying and all I could think of, the, mem- the only memories I know that were stirred up all had to do with my father. And in that day, the Lord delivered me of a hatred for my father. He can do it. He can do it. That's not to say I don't get irritated with him and he with me. We're still humans. We still live life together. But I'm not bound by that hatred any longer. The same can happen. But the first thing we do is we release the judgment that we've made. You know, we put ourselves, again, another, you talk about a landing strip for the kingdom of darkness. Judge not lest you be judged. Why? For by the measure with which you judge, it will be measured to you. So whatever we say about our parents, we can rest assured. It may not come through our children, though most of the time it does. That mama's curse comes to pass. One day you're gonna have a kid just like you. That does happen. <laughs> But judgment doesn't just come through a similar relationship. If we've judged those who are in authority, who have actual authority in our lives, we'll reap it somewhere. So let's be free of that, amen? Let's be free of judgment. God is always seeking ways to show compassion and mercy. So how do we do when authorities fail? How do we do? Do we spread it abroad? You know, you'll see when we get to 2 Samuel 1, when David finally, after all these years, maybe more than a decade of running for his life from King Saul, got word that Saul had died in battle, he didn't go singing, ding dong, the witch is dead. (laughs) He tore his robe, he tore his garment, so did all of his men with him, and he sang the song of the bow. And in that song, he said, tell it not in Gath, don't, don't spread the word around about what just happened to the king. Tell it not in Gath, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. He talks about how beautiful and how lovely Saul and Jonathan were in their days, and he sang a song of genuine compassion. What a miracle. You'll see when we read the next couple, like three or four chapters of David's life, what an absolute miracle of mercy. That's for an old covenant king. Old covenant. No spirit of God inhabiting, spirit of God coming on him, being filled with the spirit, yeah, but not like we've got. That was old covenant king doing a new covenant thing. We have access to that same thing. How well we carry the spirit of compassion and mercy uh, toward authorities who fail can really be a major deciding factor in our own destiny. This is one of those places, remember I promised to show you areas along the way. David excelled and became the king that Jesus said, I'm gonna sit on his throne when I come into the earth. He was that good. These are all the hurdles that David overcame on the way. This is a major one. How we handle 
When people in authority fail, if we don't handle it well, how would God want to trust us with a position of real authority? So, showing and sowing honor in circumstances like that is a major door opener for promotion. Now, I could tell you stories, but I won't, unless some of you figure out who I might be talking about. But every authority I've ever served under had weakness. Every authority, I mean, some of them are close to perfect Jesus, but not always. And I've had to learn the same along the way. I had, you know, some bosses that just flat out lied. Nobody here in Pennsylvania flat out loud. I don't want you to try to connect dots. No, but the response to it determined my future. And so it is with all of us. Showing dishonor can actually bring a curse into our lives. Showing dishonor to those in authority. This goes back to the days of the flood. Do you know the, how the curse of Canaan came about? After the flood, it says that, I think I put it up, yep. After the flood, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. This is Noah, the only perfect man in all creation that God said, I'm gonna build the rest of mankind from you and your family. This is the best he could find. He's the only dude alive. I mean, he and his family of eight, of course. And the only one out there. And he got drunk. I've heard amazing commentaries say, well, he got drunk by accident because the atmosphere was different after. I don't know. He, it says he got drunk. He got drunk, and he was so drunk, he's laying naked inside of his tent. Now, that's a shameful place to be, especially in front of your kids. Aaron, can you imagine if you ever... Sorry to put that picture in your head, but what would that be like? It is a shameful thing. To, sorry, Aaron. I mean, I just saw you there. I thought. Now, how, what would be the right response to seeing your father completely exposed, literally exposed, and in a shameful, sinful place? Well, Ham came in, the father of Canaan came and saw his nakedness of his father and went and he couldn't wait to tell his brothers. Hey, God, come here. You can believe it. He brought his brothers in to see his father laying naked in the tent. Now, his brothers were wise and honorable. Of course, one of them is Shem, father of the Semitic people, the Shemitic people, Shem and Japheth, the two honorable ones. And it says that when they heard it, they grabbed hold of a robe. It says they, they took a garment and laid it on both of their shoulders and they walked in backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And the faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. They heard about the shameful, sinful position their father was in and rather than expose it further, they couldn't even bear to look at it with their own eyes. They said, we're gonna cover that nakedness. We're gonna cover this shameful moment. Oh, what would it be? What would the world be like? What would our nation be like if the body of Christ responds to those in governing authority, those in any kind of authority? When we hear about their sin, instead of broadcasting it and gossiping about it and promoting the sin, what if we said, oh, Lord, protect that man, protect that woman. They sit in a seat of authority right now. Our destiny is tied into their success. Lord, would you... Help cover that thing. You know, love covers a multitude of offenses. That's what love does. Love covers a multitude of offenses. This is where that phrase probably comes from originally. It doesn't cover up 
offense, we deal with it, but we deal with it in a right and good and godly way. Why do you think Jesus said, when a brother sins against you, go and show him his fault? Just between the two of you, right? You guys okay? It is really important that we get cut to the core by this message. I am absolutely 100,000% convinced that these things already, just in like the first stages of Dave's journey to the throne, are the places where the overwhelming majority of believers fall off and miss out on opportunities to exercise actual spiritual authority in the places that we're sent to. So when Noah woke up uh, from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done, and he cursed him, a servant to his brothers he shall be. So let's determine to live lives in honor. Honor those in authority. As soon as we begin to feel the words begin to bubble up out of our mouth, let's be hasty to close it and repent that we would think that way and instead say, Lord, turn my lips toward blessing. Turn my lips toward speaking words that will bring that one to an encounter with the living God. How many of you would rather see a president repent and have a public salvation and a 180 turnaround in front of the whole world than to see them fall and then we win the next election? Aren't you tired of that? I am. That's the authority that we have in the body of Christ. And this is where it begins. It begins with our response to seeing the weakness of those in authority. All right, let me wrap this up quickly and I'll, I'll close with a good, happy spiritual point. So Saul sent to Jesse, he said, hey, I love this guy. He sings songs and all of a sudden I'm calm and I don't feel like murdering anybody anymore. So can I keep him? He sends to Jesse, he said, you know, thanks for the goat and whatnot, but I want David. He's amazing. I want him to stay. And, and David, you know, is doing his thing in the palace. So um, it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came on Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and be well and the evil spirit would depart from him. How many of you would like to have that kind of an anointing on your life? Walk into a situation where in his case, everybody else, you know, Saul's going into one of his mad fits, probably foaming at the mouth, and everybody else is doing this. David goes in with his harp, and whoosh, heaven begins to invade the room. And all of a sudden, the king is calm again, and he has his senses about him again, and maybe even has moments of clarity remembering what it was like when he was intimate with God. All because David brought something that was absent from that palace. Before Israel needed David's sword, it needed David's harp. And I want to tell you that the, before the world needs our spiritual warfare, the world needs our, our worship. Our worship. How we connect with God in the secret place. How we connect corporately together with God. Worship could be staring at a screen, singing words, and waiting for the message. This is not the right church for you if that's your attitude, because I'm not a great preacher. You can find much better preachers on podcasts. We're a presence-based church. We're a place that hungers and thirsts. You know, we, like we were praying this morning, you did it at Asbury, why not here? That, that's our heart. I mean, there was much more amens earlier about that. To be a place that's known not for great preaching, not for great worship, not for great anything that happens up here on this platform. Do you know how I'm always rearranging the chairs in this room? You know what my ideal one is that there's like we're all in a circle. Like the rainbow around the throne. Like, like the, uh, who did that? The Quakers? Yeah, the Quakers used to meet like that. 
They would just gather around in a circle and in the outpouring days of the Quakers, they would literally start trembling when the presence of God came and you weren't allowed to talk till that happened. They were a radical group. That, that there is such a desire for the presence of God. That's who we are. That's what's important. That before we go out and we're going to accomplish anything, we got to have the presence. We're a presence-driven people. David's presence-driven life enabled him to bring God's presence into a palace that was filled with demonic oppression. Is your workplace filled with demonic oppression? Praise God. Thank God he sent you there. Go in with your presence-driven life and see what happens. Go in with your harp. I dare you to go to MI and play the harp when you go in. <laughs> Maybe a different instrument. Maybe just the instrument of your voice. Maybe just whatever instrument of worship works in that place. But rather than cursing the darkness as they say, go in and know, I'm carrying something here and greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. I wanna dominate, I wanna overwhelm the atmosphere. Gotta make that your prayer. Lord, help me to overwhelm the atmosphere in my workplace. Help me to overwhelm the atmosphere in the places you send me with what's in me rather than become overwhelmed by what's outside of me. Make me like David. Make me one who just begins to worship you, brings an attitude of worship and a, a presence that I've been in and an overflow of worship that changes the atmosphere in this place. Let me see salvations in the workplace. You know, I mean, I'm glad it's happening in a chapel at Asbury, and I praise God. I, I listened, you know, the message that was shared that day, probably shared a thousand times before. God just said, yeah, how about today? And no other answer to it. There's no, don't try to find a formula. Don't try to find a, oh, they did this, this. They pulled that lever, pushed that button, and boom, revival. God just said, now, why not in the workplace? Why not in the places to which you've been sent? Why not, hey, I gotta bring my friend to church so they could get saved. Instead of that, why not, man, I wanna see that happen at work. Pay attention. Go in with, a, with an outflow, go in with a worship-filled heart and watch what happens. Watch what happens when people start coming over and say, can you pray for me? And you're gonna be like, huh, you? You've been mocking me since the day I got here and now, yeah, but now my life just fell apart and you know, I'm in the middle of all kinds of stuff and, and you seem to have it together, you know? There'll be a day of coming out. What David did in secret, God's promoted him openly. Here's a need, and we know just the man for the job. You are just the man, just the woman for the job. I'm not stirring you enough. You guys tired? <laughs> Our secret place life is the most important gift that we have. What, what we got going on in, in us, just between us and the Lord, that is the greatest gift we have. We can only manifest what we actually carry. I think I shared with you, right? The only job we have in this world is to manifest. I don't mean that in the charismatic way. I mean, I mean just what's on the inside of us to become visible on the outside. That's what manifest means. Make something known that was previously hidden. You cannot manifest something that you're not carrying. You can't carry someone else's anointing. You can't carry, like I preached my heart out today, you can't carry my words with any kind of life. They gotta become your word. I tell all those that are called to teach and preach, you gotta be a, a voice, not an echo. 
You gotta have something you got from the secret place. Yeah, the words and the, the teaching, you might have heard some things. We all learn from a lot of different sources, but there has got to come a place and a time where we just press into God and we say, it's just me and you, Jesus, and I need something that's real. You know, David couldn't go in because he learned some songs and just start singing those songs in front of Saul. He might have gotten killed by the spears before, you know, long at that. No, he carried something that he had on the inside. You know what's amazing? I'm even, I just need to feel like I need to say this and I'll get it out of my system. Promise is not a soapbox. This is important. All these critics of what's going on at Asbury. There's always critics for every revival. And as soon as I see where it's going, I'm boop. I can't handle it. These intellectual, well, you know, and then sometimes it's the ones who experience it this way. Well, that's not really revival because we experience it like this kind of criticism, all these kind of criticisms like that. And, and I'm like, you know what? If you have never been the source of revival, zip it, humble yourself, and learn from the Lord. Until you got something of your own and there's a demonstration of some fruit from the life that you carry in you, there is no one to criticize. There's no such thing as criticism. We have nothing to offer that's actual, hey, I have something to contribute to this, which is what good criticism does. All we've got is judgment. And honestly, nobody wants to hear it. We just get in the presence. We can only manifest what we carry. I remember experiencing this a little bit. A Christ Community Church, Randy Clark, had just come down from Toronto and the Lord told him, I want you to set up in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. My goodness. From Toronto to Camp Hill, only the Spirit of God. So he set up, and he was at Christ Community for a little while. It's kind of cool getting to know him and his kids, and you know, they were here, and it was really neat. You know, just knowing him as a human, not just as the man that I read about and heard about. And um, where was I going with that? He, he would take, uh, he still does it, trips down to Brazil, which is, by the way, experiencing one of the longest ongoing moves of the Spirit, still with power and demonstration, like blind eyes open, deaf hearing, like miracles like that happening in nightly revival services. Still going on well over 25 years now. And you could go to certain hot spots where the Spirit of God is still being poured out. So he would bring Americans down who were hungry for that, train them for just a little bit and then put them out there on the altar team. So we had youth go down on one trip and every one of them came back testifying. I laid hands on this woman and she was blind and then she could see. And this guy, you know, came in a wheelchair and I laid hands on him and prayed and he left dancing. I mean, they were all coming back with these testimonies, but here's what happened. They came back very judgy because we weren't experiencing it quite to that degree. We were seeing miracles, but not like that at Christ Community. So they came back, <laughs> they came back and they were like being really judgy about the pastoral staff and the leadership and our altar team. And they're like, oh, well, I've seen blind eyes open up. You've never seen that. And they were acting like that. But then they realized that back here in the US, they weren't seeing that anymore. Like one or two of them carried it for a little while longer and then it faded. And what they came to realize was a truth that while there, they were operating under Randy Clark's mantle and anointing that there was a move of the spirit and they just got swept away in it, but they hadn't yet caught it on the inside. So whatever we got on the inside can't be hidden, but we also can't manifest what we don't have ourselves on the inside. We can't do things by the strength or anointing of another. So to manifest heaven and the earth, it's still gotta be manifest to us and in us in private. Let's stand to our feet. 
Let's just call on the Lord and ask him. And it's, you know, I'm not looking for it to happen here in here. I believe, you know, this is an exhortation, a lengthier than usual exhortation, I know, to get after it in the secret place and to not have this gathering be or any gathering be the only time we encounter the Lord. So Lord, I pray that you would visit every saint of God in the secret place, that what happens in that secret place would then be made manifest outside. Lord, I pray that there'd be visitations, that even as saints open up the scriptures, that the scriptures will come alive in a new way as if you're writing the word right in front of them in your manifest presence. I pray as worship begins to happen in the secret place, that heaven would come down and the glory of the Lord would fill that prayer closet or that bedroom or wherever it is, that there'd be a sense of your glory that would rest in that place, that there'd be a sense of your goodness. I pray it'd be easy to find you for every saint of God. Lord, heal every area of stony heart, heal every hesitation, and I pray you'd put a spirit of repentance on every one of us who's been avoiding that place or thinking somehow that we could live life without it. Lord, would you forgive us for basically passively saying, apart from you, I can still do a lot of things. Turn us toward apart from you, we could do nothing and reconnect us, Lord. I pray there'd be a a real sweet spirit of grace that would come to reconnect. I pray there'd be a a whisper in every soul that's been distant from God to hear your voice. Hey, I really miss you. I really miss you. I really miss how we used to walk together. I really miss what it was like when you had your first love and you couldn't wait to be alone with me again. I pray that that kind of whisper would would rise up in every saint. Let the secret place explode with your glory. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray the enemy, I say right now the enemy has no room to bring any condemnation. There will be no shame. There will be no guilt. There will be no condemnation for anyone here who's in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Only a sweet spirit of repentance that says from this day onward, I'm going to live different. I'm going to say it's better to be in your courts for just one day than to spend a thousand anywhere else. Amen.